Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Josh Hammer Show. That sound you hear is a bunch of pro-Hamas, jihad-sympathizing college students coughing in my face while trying to give a talk at the University of Michigan on November 16th. I began my talk on the Israel-Hamas conflict in Gaza. Within 60 to 90 seconds of beginning, 20 to 25 of them stand up, throw their arms into the air. We see some photos on their shirts of Arabs who have tragically died in Gaza since this began. Now, I say in fact that each and every one of those deaths is attributable under well-established principles of international law, not to Israel, but to Hamas. A few minutes later, the coughing began, what you just heard there clearly trying to drown out my voice. Unfortunately, for a very long time, they succeeded. The coughing then turned to all the shouts that you would be familiar with. Remember their names. Free Palestine, from the river to the sea. All the usual garbage. University administrators that evening were horrifically slow to respond. I was not able to resume my talk for 30 to 35 minutes. After which, the protesters started banging on the walls, leaving red handprints on the walls. Yes, their hands were all red. They made it look like they had blood on their hands. Folks, this was my most visceral face-to-face interaction with what we're going to talk about with our guest coming up, Brooke Goldstein, which is anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, whatever you want to call it, the world's most ancient and intractable form of bigotry out there. Looking into the eyes of these quote-unquote protesters in front of me that evening in Michigan, one of whom tried to make a beeline for me about 20 minutes in, and thankfully I had a personal body man, a security guard with me who leaped out of his seat to protect me. There is no way to look into the eyes of these nihilistic, soulless individuals and conclude that you are dealing, there's no way to conclude that you are dealing with anything other than pure, unmitigated evil. These are students in this case, professors in many other cases, who are openly cheering on genocide of the most genocided people ever. And they have the chutzpah to turn the tables and then accuse Israel of genocide. It's just, it's unspeakable stuff. This is a horrible problem 
the problem of anti-Semitism. The world has seen it firsthand. It ultimately, of course, is not about the Jews. It is about Western civilization. We're going to get into all of this and more with our guest, Brooke Goldstein. We're going to have a great conversation with Brooke. Stay with us. We will be right back with Brooke Goldstein. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. We're joined now by one of my very favorite people in the broader fight for the Jewish people, for the Jewish state of Israel, and frankly, just by extension, for the forces of civilization against barbarism that ultimately is the fight on a global scale. That, of course, is Brooke Goldstein. She is the executive director of the Lawfare Project, founder of the End Jew Hatred Movement and the author of End Jew Hatred, A Manual for Mobilization, now available for pre-order on Amazon and elsewhere. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Josh, thank you so much for having me. You bet. So I, I personally first became aware of the Lawfare Project many moons ago. It was probably around the time that I was in law school, heading towards the end of law school. It might have been my first year of legal practice after law school. I can't quite recall but for as long as i have been following the space lawfare project has been one of one of the tips of the spear in, in pushing back against jew hatred wherever it raises its ugly head left right center islamist wherever it is so this is obviously a, a uniquely challenging time for that particular fight so why don't you just walk us through to open our conversation what what it's been like for you one of the leaders in this movement over the past six weeks and what has the lawfare project been up to josh thank you so much again for having me on i'm, I'm really appreciative of uh being on this platform with you and talking about these issues Basically, um, I'm happy to see if there's a silver lining through all of this, that the Jewish community has um, woken up and understood the need for grassroots mobilization and also legal action. When I started the Lawfare Project over 10 years ago, it was really an uphill battle to convince the community not only that they have civil rights, that those civil rights are being violated, um, that they are a minority community and deserve equal protection, and that there is nothing wrong with going to a court of law and asking that your rights be upheld. 
the Jewish community felt um, in large part that legal action was too aggressive. I was told also that it would influence more anti-Semitism, that people would see the Jews as, you know, aggressively running to courts of law to punish people. And obviously I had the opposite point of view. I thought that just sitting on our hands and doing nothing is not an option, um, that there's nothing wrong with embracing the fact that we have been victimized and we deserve our day in court. And I think after October the 7th, there's been a, a big wake up call. The things that people like you and I have been warning about for the past 10 years are now materializing right in front of us. We've been warning about the radicalization on campuses. We've been warning about the rampant Title VI violations, the foreign funding coming into campuses that are teaching pro-Hamas values to our American youth, anti-democratic, anti-American values. And we see now how Jewish students um, are being treated on campuses, not only in a discriminatory way, but also in a, in a very scary way. Um, and the administrations have been intimidated by this pro-Hamas uh, loud minority that they have really failed in their responsibilities to protect Jewish students. So we have had um, an enormous influx of requests for assistance. We are now in the process of preparing several uh, major lawsuits against um, significant universities. And I'm very happy to see that there are other organizations that are preparing to do the same, that there are law firms that are also offering their services pro bono to the Jewish community. Over the last four weeks, we've been putting together our legal war room, which is now comprised of over 600 lawyers around the world wow. and over three dozen major law firms. Um, and we are going on the offense. And going on the offense is really the only option that we have at, at a time like this. I mean, me personally, my mentality is I'm pretty much a perpetual go on offense kind of guy. In fact, I feel like not doing so is one of the many reasons why we're in this predicament in the first place over the past 50, 60 years. I mean, going back at least as far as the six day war of 1967, probably, you know, the the pro Jewish, pro Israel side of the argument, from my perspective, has far too often kind of pleaded a more defensive posture of just trying to say peace, two states, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the the other side has, has portrayed a, a, a moral argument. And that is that is not a compelling moral argument. It is actually an immoral argument, but at least they're arguing on moral terms. So when you're talking here about kind of taking a sword as opposed to taking up this defensive, more shield posture, that's that's very much music to my ears. In fact, I was at a dinner just last night before you and I are recording this, and we were talking about the legal aspect. We were talking about what sort of you know, whether it's class action lawsuits or what other sort of litigation is in the works here. Why don't you talk a little bit more about litigation as, and lawfare in general, which, you know, literally is in the title of your organization, the Lawfare Project. Can you just tell us a little bit more about how that is one of our most effective tools in this arsenal and then perhaps what are our, our other tools that are currently available? Sure. So first of all, I want to address what you said about um, being on the offense versus defense. We've created this industry, right, of pro-Israel advocacy, where basically we are sending our students on campuses with 15-page pamphlets about how to defend Israel. 
We are teaching them um, to argue within the paradigm of the enemy. We have to defend against these accusations of occupation or apartheid or or um, I don't know war crimes charges, and and we're always on the defense. And it, it's not a winning argument. And, and you can see that over the past 10 years, no matter how many millions of dollars and, and competent nonprofits have been in this game of pro-Israel advocacy, it hasn't moved the needle. In fact, I would say the needle has been moving the opposite way. Um, so what we do uh, at the Andrew Hadrian Movement with our campus fellowship program is we're introducing a new paradigm. And the paradigm is not pro-Israel advocacy, because ultimately what, what you're trying to do is, is to get someone to love a foreign country thousands of miles away that they have no connection to. And they frankly just don't care about, you know, there's plenty of countries that me and you, you know, don't have an affinity to. And and if somebody came up to me and started pushing why I should love that country on me, I, I'd, I'd be a little bit suspicious but we are in the age of minority rights movements. And what we're trying to do is replace the pro-Israel advocacy with civil rights advocacy. We're trying to teach the Jewish community not how to advocate for Israel, because that's not the job of a 17-year-old of a who goes to campus. It's not his job to get everyone to love Israel. It's not his job to stand up for Israel, but it is his or her job to stand up for himself. And that's what civil rights advocacy is about. It is about standing up for yourself as a minority that's deserved of equal protection. And when your civil rights are being violated, whether it's, you know, pure Jew hatred or whether it's anti-Zionism, okay, whether people are using a foreign conflict happening thousands of miles away to then turn around and project their hatred of a foreign government on you because of your religion or the way you look or because of where you're born. Your responsibility is to stand up for yourself and to use the same tools and strategies that other minority rights movements have used in America successfully. And, and we are 20 years late in this game. And I, I always say that the more we respond to anti-Jewish discrimination with pro-Israel advocacy, the more we give ammunition um, to their to their propaganda and to their projection of of hatred. So an example is, you know, if, if I hate China, let's say because of the way they handled COVID, I don't turn around to a local Chinese American student and and discriminate against him or her. That's unacceptable. That's bigotry. But that's exactly what's happening to Jewish students. You have groups that say we hate Israel and then turn around and discriminate against Jewish students using Israel as an excuse, as an excuse. Like what happened to Jonathan Carton, our client at Columbia University. He was walking across the quad. He's Jewish. He's Israeli. And somebody spat on him and called him a dirty Zionist baby killer. That's bigotry. That's racism 101. And yet this is excused because it's seen as political advocacy, political speech. And if we respond to anti-Jewish racism with arguments about Israel, we're feeding into that narrative that that hating Israel is, is some sort of affirmative defense to 
anti-Jewish discrimination. So what we do at the Lawfare Project is we take these instances where Jewish civil rights are being violated and they're being violated by people who are using Israel or or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as an excuse. And we bring it back to what it really is. We use the courts to advocate for our clients, saying that their rights as a minority, that they are, are being violated, that they are being targeted because of a protected category, their race, religion, their national origin. These are all protected categories. And what's so interesting is that You know, when we go into court, we don't have to make arguments about Israel to win on the issue of discrimination. All we need to show is that our client has been treated differently because they're Jewish or because they're Israeli. So another example, um, when we sued the National Lawyers Guild for engaging in an unlawful uh, boycott of Israelis, Uh, The National Lawyers Guild, by the way, is one of the oldest lawyers guilds in America. It has thousands of members. It has dozens of chapters throughout the country. And the National Lawyers Guild passed a BDS resolution. um, And uh, our client, which was a Israeli company, attempted to do business with the National Lawyers Guild. And they wrote an email saying, I'm sorry, we have a resolution and we cannot do business with you because you are Israeli. We took National Lawyers Guild to court. I didn't have to argue about uh, the occupation. I didn't have to argue about, you know, the 67 lines. I don't have to argue about whether or not BDS uh, has legitimate arguments. All I had to show is that our client was discriminated against because of its national origin, because it was Israeli. And based on that argument, we ended up uh, settling the case with the National Lawyers Guild. We ended up uh, forcing them to enact a new uh, policy that revoked their prior policy of encouraging discrimination based on natural, national origin, which is illegal. And we force them in the end to do business with our client. And and that's the power of civil rights advocacy. That's the power of impact litigation. You take um, the, the, the argument out of politics and policy because all of that is a ruse. All of that is a smokescreen. And you see it now. You see these uh, mobs on the street that are being described as pro-Palestinian. There's nothing pro-Palestinian about them. It's not a Palestinian democracy movement. It's not a Palestinian peace movement. It's not a movement to create a Palestinian state. These are pro-Hamas mobs that are taking advantage of a foreign conflict that are skillfully using language about a foreign conflict in order to justify what is racism and discrimination and the spread of hatred in our country. And impact litigation um, is is effective and it's um, a, a very strategic tool to use that we have every right to use as a minority community, every right to use, because we are not arguing foreign policy. We are bringing this back to what it is, which is a minority rights issue. Anti-Jewish discrimination is a civil rights issue. It's not a political issue. And, you know, when you, when you talk here about using lawfare on behalf of minority, and thank you, by the way, Brooke, for that very long explanation. When, when you're talking here about using the the tools of the rule of law of litigation of the courts for 
minority groups purposes. I mean, I think back to the civil rights movement. I think back to, you know, NAACP versus Alabama. I think back to many of these landmark cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. So I really like the way that you're framing this. And it clearly is time for for the broader pro-Israel, pro-Jewish movement to change tactics because we have so much donor money that, from my perspective, has all all too frequently just just gone to waste. I mean, I have no idea what the purported ROI is on, on some of these major ultra-millionaire, billionaire uh, donations and investments over the years. Fortunately, you know, you with Lawfare Project and the End Jew Hatred Movement are, are starting to turn the tide a little bit. And I know on a personal level, I'm just very grateful for that. So we're going to take it to a very quick commercial break here. We're joined by Brooke Goldstein, Executive Director of the Lawfare Project and founder of the End Jew Hatred Movement. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Brooke. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The Josh Hammer Show. Brooke, I want to ask you about Jew hatred and its role in kind of the broader kind of politically correct DEI, identity politics, all of that stuff. And I think back to one of my all-time favorite Fox News hits. This was a hit probably nine, nine and a half years ago or so. And it, it was Ben Shapiro, who I ultimately worked for, who has become a friend. And this is before I, I got to know him personally. It was Ben who went on Fox to talk. I think it was with Shannon Bream. It was back at UCLA, Ben's alma mater. He was in LA and he went to go basically speak against a, a BDS resolution that was being debated there. And then he went to talk about it on Fox that evening. And he, he had this very compelling way of phrasing it. It's a line that's always stuck with me, Brooke. And the line that Ben used in, in this hit nine, nine and a half years ago or so was he said that Jew hatred is the world's most politically correct form of bigotry. And, you know, I have come myself to use that many times in, in my writings and in, in my hits, podcasts, radio and whatnot over the years. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that, you know, you, you founded the end Jew hatred movement? You just explained that at great length here. How do we deal with the cultural currents and the fact that, anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, whatever we're calling it, is just fashionable these days. It is just frankly in vogue by way too many elites, way too many of the powers that be. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I talk a lot about this in my book. And one of the conclusions that I've come to is that in a sense, we've allowed. Well, first of all, let me put it this way. Jew hatred over time, if if you take a historical perspective on this, obviously um, comes and ebbs and flows and there, there are periods where it rises and then it goes down and then it rises again. And, and we're now at one of those periods where it's obviously rising. And the uh, reason is because we have failed to impose real consequences 
for bad behavior. Um, going back to what you said before the break, you, you mentioned all these seminal civil rights cases before the Supreme Court, right? You have um, Brown v. Board of Education as well, which which led to the total desegregation of American schools. When you take these issues to the courts, when you take people um, to court who have committed discrimination, you ensure there is a consequence for that behavior. And in terms of the return on investment with impact litigation, you set a precedent. Even though you have your one or two or three plaintiffs and, and you have the defendant in your particular fact pattern, what you're doing really is setting a precedent in a court of law that will deter similar behavior. And you're setting a precedent not just for your minority group. You know, when we bring a case for Jewish civil rights, the precedent we set is for all minority groups. And unless administrations, unless unless schools are held accountable for what they're doing, unless an employer is held accountable for uh, allowing and permitting and tolerating systemic discrimination within the workplace, unless there is accountability and consequences, this behavior will continue. And the Jewish community, even though we've been on the front lines of almost every single other minority rights movement, right. uh, marching for others, we have not equally demanded the similar social, legal, political consequences for anti-Jewish behavior. And I hope with, with October the 7th being this watershed moment, which has not only unified the Jewish community, but has also, again, you know, given us somewhat of a wake-up call that we are now mobilizing, not just to ensure consequences legally, but also socially. We're seeing now mass protests. The NGO hatred movement has been uh, mobilizing the Jewish community for the past two years uh, to do protests, um, to show up outside, whether it's the offices of Zoom. We had 150 people show up outside protesting when Zoom was hosting Leila Khaled. We got her deplatformed and, and canceled. Um, we've been uh, protesting different other elements of Jew hatred and making it known that the people who tolerate this will feel consequences. And I think that's really the key to ensuring that Jew hatred gets pushed down, becomes socially unacceptable, becomes politically incorrect again. And certainly that's what we're what we're all fighting for. It just seems to me that we're up against some pretty powerful forces, but that, that is, it would not be the first time. It, it is not the first time, in fact, that a minority group has been up against powerful cultural forces. And we do have a lot of tools, thankfully, at our disposal. One of those tools, I think, has to be this this broader shift away from donors giving to, from employers hiring from, and from parents sending their children to universities that have just become breeding grounds for the most absolute genocidal, frankly, for lack of a better term, genocidal, annihilationist, just Nazi-esque forms of, of bigotry. Um, Jew hatred being probably highest on the list, but ultimately these folks hate Western civilization, as we all know. And I'd like to get your thoughts, Brooke, on maybe concrete steps that we can 
take to try to ultimately remedy this problem. We had Leo Leibovitz of Tablet Magazine on, on the podcast recently. I was talking with him about foreign investment in American higher education. Qatar specifically has been the number one giver to American higher education over the past 20-ish years. Many prestigious universities like Cornell, Northwestern, Georgetown all have satellite campuses in Doha, which, by the way, is the same city where Hamas leadership literally lives. It's probably a stone's throw from these American university campuses. So I'm wondering if you, if you could just kind of elaborate on, on that piece of the puzzle. You mentioned the litigation there at Columbia University, which has been one of the many sore spots, one of probably one of the most anti-Semitic universities in America has been going back as far as when they hosted Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, you know, 15, 20 years ago, whenever that was. So why don't you just kind of talk to the audience about the higher education piece of the puzzle and what your organizations are doing and what we all can be doing to push back on that front. I'm really happy that you raised that because I think that's basically the most important thing that we need to be talking about right now. And I want to, first of all, phrase it that this isn't just a Jewish problem. Um, One of the mistakes we make is, is phrasing things as though, you know, this is why anti-Semitism is spreading and this is why the Jewish community needs to be alarmed. All Americans need to be alarmed at the fact that Qatar has been spending over $10 billion over the last 10 years of of what we've been able to uncover. I'm sure there's a lot more money and just on college campuses to create a fifth column within the country that is not just anti-Semitic, but is anti-Israel, is anti-democracy, is pro-terror, pro-radicalization. This is a national security threat for the United States of America. When you have mobs marching on the street, chanting pro-Hamas slogans, which include globalize the intifada, that means they want to bring the violence here. They are very clear with what their intentions are. It does nothing to do with just Israel. And I worry um, when people say, well, we, we shouldn't send Jewish students to these campuses. I, I disagree. That That's what they want. They want Jew-free zones. And, and we cannot seed that space. In fact, we must encourage Jewish students to go to these campuses to organize and to mobilize in a way that's effective using the tools and strategies, again, that other minority rights movements have used, including civil rights litigation under Title VI. Um, I'm concerned also when we think that pulling Jewish money uh, excuse me, when pulling Jewish money from these schools um, is going to have any effect. It won't. Um, they're just going to be getting more money from Qatar. And the urgent need right now is to, number one, hold these schools accountable when they are violating the law, when they are uh, un- not documenting the funding that they're receiving, which is required by law, when they're violating potentially FARA regulations, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. If you are taking any type of money or strategic direction or control from a foreign entity, you need to register as a foreign agent. And these university administrators are acting as foreign agents on behalf of 
foreign governments. And I understand there is an education loophole, but I do not think this falls within the loophole. What, what Qatar is doing is not funding education. They're not teaching students one plus one equals two. They are funding a subversive anti-democratic movement in our country to sow discord and to uh, encourage violence and to overthrow our democracy. This is a, a political movement that they are funding and they're doing so nefariously and they're doing so strategically. And we, we need to close those loopholes. So the, the urgent initiative, obviously, besides a slew of lawsuits that we're preparing against these schools to to make sure that not only um, are they held accountable, but we institute the, the type of systemic change, whether it's through court decisions or, or settlement agreements that, that is needed to, to end this pervasive discrimination. But there needs to be a a very robust lobbying campaign um, for legislation that uh, prevents governments that are hostile to the United States, such as Qatar, the second largest funder of terrorism in the world, um, from taking advantage of our democracy. Because if we continue to allow this funding uh, to take place, um, we are not going to have a democracy. We are going to have what we saw happen just outside the DNC, violent mobs roaming our streets, threatening violence against Americans, not just against Jews. Uh, we saw what happened, for example, at Cooper's Union with a pro-Hamas mob ended up marching through the campus and uh uh, Jewish students were locked in the library as they were threatening them with violence and, and banging on the windows and the doors with sticks and other and other weapons. That's what the future looks like if we don't get a hold of this. And and frankly, it's quite scary. It is scary, but we're thankful for people like you who are engaged in the fight day in and day out on the front lines fighting back again ultimately really not just for the jews not just for israel not just for america even for that matter but ultimately truly for the forces of western civilization against genocidal barbarism brooke for those who are looking to learn more about and get more involved in lawfare project or the end jew hatred movement where can they go well i invite them to go to our websites uh law and I believe it's NJewHatred.com. But I, I want to end with um, what I think is a really important message, that the Jewish community, the way that we've been organized to date, and it has served us, and I, I'm not criticizing, I'm just pointing this out, we're very top heavy, right? We have these big box organizations with CEOs who are answerable to their boards, who are answerable to their donors with multi-million dollar budgets. And, you know, we've been told if you want to fight anti-Semitism, write a check to Federation, write a check to Simon Wiesenthal Center, and we will take care of it for you. And there's, there's a role that these organizations still play. But we have to evolve because anti-Semitism is not going to be effectively fought and defeated within our country by relying on these major organizations. Every single Jewish person and our allies 
must mobilize themselves, must wake up every morning and think, what can I do personally to make a difference? How can I leverage my contacts to ensure that instances of Jew hatred on my local level have consequences? And so what we've been doing with the end Jew hatred movement is we've been teaching communities, regular people in communities, you don't have to be involved, you have to be on a donor circle or you know, in the APAC women's uh, uh, circle to, to make a difference. And we've been teaching the communities how to mobilize on a local level, how to use the same strategies that other minority rights movements have used to ensure that there is a consequence for a particular uh, instance of Jew hatred at the local level. And, and that is what I think is so important now. And that is what we are seeing. You know, we just opened up a chapter of, of and Jew hatred in Chicago. And within 48 hours, we got 400 members of that chapter. Wow. We are providing them with funding. We're providing them with pro bono legal support if they want to have a rally, if they want to engage in any type of direct action, they have access to our attorneys uh, to help them get permits, to help them navigate uh, the legal system. And then we are also providing them with strategic advice. And so I encourage everyone who's listening today to get involved personally. And it's not about writing a check. It's about mobilizing yourself to the best of your ability and forming a chapter and working with your community to engage and, and to design direct actions that ensure consequences for Jew hatred. Well, it's a fantastic call to arms, Brooke. Really grateful for your being in the fight every day and grateful for your time on this program as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Josh, for having me. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Pentagon requesting $114 million for woke DEI programs after failing sixth audit. So the funding request is the largest of its kind yet for the Department of Defense, which earmarked $68 million for DEI initiatives in 2022 and then a whopping $86.5 million in 2023. You know, last I checked, the 
goal of the Pentagon, the goal of the United States Department of Defense and the goal of the United States military was to hunt down and kill our enemies in the most efficient way possible in terms of both blood, treasure and saving lives, saving money, all of the above. It is unclear at best how so-called DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which essentially amounts to anti-white, anti-Christian, anti-Asian, anti-Jewish bigotry, it is unclear at best how this fortifies that mission. At worst, it directly hamstrings and undermines it, especially when you consider, as the Wokarates all too often fail to consider, that the United States military is disproportionately comprised, comprised of the very people that the left scorns, those white Americans, typically Christians in the American heartland throughout the Midwest and the South. That is who is disproportionately comprising the United States military in the year 2023. And oh, by the way, to make this problem even worse, the U.S. military has been suffering a horrific recruitment problem the past few years. So take those factors combined, a massive recruitment problem. Then you think about the fact that most of the military to begin with is comprised of white Christians and black Christians, but mostly white Christians from the Midwest and the South. Hmm. Can't imagine how DEI could do anything other than hurt that. These people are just so utterly idiotic. Florida City converts all public single-use restrooms to all gender. This is St. Petersburg, Florida. It is the Tony suburb of Tampa, Florida. The mayor there has signed an executive policy on September 1st. So it is now enacted to convert all of its public single occupancy family restrooms in the city to quote, all gender restrooms. Signs indicating a specific gender will be replaced with ones that designate the bathrooms as all gender by next March. You know, if if I were talking to an audience, I would do a show of hands thing upon reading this show of hands, proverbially speaking, in this case, who among them actually wants to do their business to urinate and defecate? Yes, I guess we're using that term here on the Josh Hammer show. Who actually among you wants to urinate and defecate among someone of the other gender? And I presume that if I were saying this in front of a very full room, not a single hand would go up because basic human instinct you know, if this, if such thing as the natural law does exist, I think it is natural, it is inherent that there are certain things that we just don't want to do with members of the opposite sex. I mean, if you want to go just, just biblical, really, just for a second here in the creation narrative in the Garden of Eden itself, you know, Adam and Eve, they want to cover up. They want to cover up not to expose themselves to the opposite sex. Of course, the first man and first woman created here. So this is really kind of inherent in the human DNA. Progressives, of course, are not just anti-biblical. They are ultimately anti-human nature, which is why they pursue such boneheaded things as this. Gen Z wants action movies, not woke storylines. UCLA studies. So according to UCLA's Center for Scholars and Storytellers, they have a survey that Gen Z would rather see movies that show two men fighting each other rather than kissing one another. The younger generation ranks superhero movies and action films high in their interest list. Well, this is the generation that has really come of age on the Marvel films, on the DC comics films as well. But really, the the, the Marvel universe has been disproportionately influential for younger millennials and for Jay-Z. So I can't say I'm terribly surprised. Unfortunately, you know, when you think about just the various ways that Gen Z is just so utterly messed up and wow, there has not been a generation this messed up probably in 
decades, maybe even if ever. I mean, with all the garbage, the filth that they are imbibing day in and day out on TikTok, which itself is just a Chinese Communist Party information operation, a tool of spyware. And they want to see men fighting, killing each other not kissing. I mean, I mean, you know, Gen Z millennials have enough of a problem when it comes to dating and ultimately seeking marriage. Certainly, I think that when it comes to the films that they are imbibing in this case, not seeking out any kind of romance as an older generation, you know, the Gen Xers, boomers perhaps would have in, the, in this case, that definitely is going to pay some not so great dividends. Finally, woke Disney excited to roll out employee pronoun pins. The Disney Corporation recently revealed a new pronoun pins program that will soon be rolled out to all employees of its Epcot Center attraction, despite losing billions after years of highly charged activism. I mean, how much more does Disney need to suffer in order to give up on this woke ideological crusade? They have been crushed in the stock market. They've been crushed in every way possible. Is anything, is anything going to make these people realize that when you go woke, you go broke? I guess we got to teach them yet another lesson, guys. 